Father, we all have uh, come in uh, to this room with uh, a variety of uh, joys and sorrows. And uh, Lord, it would be impossible uh, for me to know all of those things and to preach a specific word to each uh, soul represented here. Uh, But Lord, because of your spirit, uh, you can do that. And Lord, I pray you would do that miraculously uh, here in these next few moments, because that is what your word does. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, so today uh, is our last sermon uh, in the book of Esther. It's the seventh and final installment of Esther. And uh, we've been looking at its, its importance for us and as present-day Americans. Um, at the very beginning of the series, in the first, uh, in the first one, we said uh, that it's really clear that we live in a post-Christian environment. Uh, just in America, think about what we've experienced the last 10 years. Uh, on one side, we've seen the expansion of gay rights. On the other side, we've seen the rise of the alt-right. Uh, we've seen uh, our, the first African-American president uh, be elected, and we've also seen a president elected who had, no, had never had public office, who was not a war hero, and had not been nominated to an office in Donald Trump. That's all happened. And sometimes it seems like our world is increasingly regressive. In other ways, it seems like it's increasingly progressive. So how, as we, as Christians, 2019 in America, how are we to respond to all this? I mean, I really, really wish uh, that we could have a seven-step plan. This is what it means, number one, to be a Christian in 2019 in America. But that's not what we have. Thankfully, that's not what we have. But what we do have is we do have a story. We have the story of Esther. And what the story of Esther has done for us uh, these last six weeks is it's really helped inspire imaginations. It's helped us to think creatively of what our lives actually should look like as Christians in a post-Christian world. And here's why. It's because what's going on in Esther. See, you have Esther and Mordecai. Uh, They also lived in a post-people-of-God world. They weren't living in Jerusalem under a Jewish king. They were living in Persia under a Persian king. They face the same situation we do. They're asking the question, how do we live in a world where we are the minority? How do we live in a world where we are exiles? See, the Jews had been hauled off from Jerusalem into into Persia, which was once Babylon, and then Persia took over Babylon. When we come to Esther... Uh, the Jews had been there for about 100 years. And it was a peaceful arrangement at this point. And as long as they didn't rock the Persian boat, they could really live their lives as they wish. But after 100 years, after all these decades, they had lost their Jewish distinctiveness. And they really had become, the Jews did, they had become more Persian than they were Jewish. So how would they get their Jewish distinctiveness back? How could they become again the people of God? And that's really what the book Esther is all about. See, when when the book begins, you've got Xerxes. You're introduced to one of the main characters in King Xerxes. King Xerxes comes on the scene. He's throwing this huge party. And as as a highlight for the end of the party, he calls his queen, Queen Vashti, in. And when he calls her in, he's not wanting to uh, have a personal relationship with her. When he calls her in, in in the midst of this big party, it's not to get her political advice on a situation. This is really to objectify her sexually in front of all these other men. Well, Vashti stands up to Xerxes, this animal, and she refuses to do so. This really ticks off Xerxes. So Xerxes banishes Vashti, takes her crown away from her. She's no longer the queen. 
give fast forward the story a little bit, and you see that the king is lonely. He really wants his queen back, but he can't do that or he's going to look weak, so he's got to pick a new queen. And instead of choosing a woman who's from a, a, a noble family, he orders that all the beautiful virgins throughout his kingdom, all 127 provinces, the most beautiful of all of them, that they be brought into the palace. And when they come into the palace, they're going to be there for a year. They're going to prepare to have one night, undergo all these beauty treatments, to have one night with the king. And whoever the king liked best, whoever pleased him the most in that one night is the woman he was going to choose. And he chooses Esther. Esther's a Jew. She's raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. And Mordecai tells her when she's taken from his house to undergo this year-long beauty treatment, he says, hey, whatever you do, don't tell anyone in the palace that you're a Jew. Esther takes the advice. She doesn't tell anybody. She keeps it a secret. And so she goes to be in the palace. Now, you might think, gosh, these these people, they sound pretty serious. You know, Mordecai and and Esther, they're like the main characters who are Jews in this book. But really, they're, they're complicated figures. They've been compromised to a large degree, just like the rest of the Jews had been. Look at Mordecai. Mordecai, we've talked about his name. His name is, comes from the root word Marduk. Marduk was the chief deity in the Persian pantheon of deities. You've got Mordecai who doesn't live on the outskirts of town with the rest of the Jews. Instead, he lives in the citadel. He lives in the most inner ring of the capital city in Persia with the other social elite so that he might fit in and have power, I suppose, to live on the fringes. He lets Esther be taken from his house. He could have pulled, pulled a Vashti. He could have said, no, you can't have her. I don't know how this is all going to work out, but I know that this is wrong, and I'm not going to let you take Esther, my beloved younger cousin. So Mordecai is a complicated figure. you got Esther, too. Esther, once she gets into the palace, it says that she wins the favor of the, the, the kind of chief of staff for all these women who have brought in. It says that he, that he loves her best. And you have to wonder... Why would that man love her best? You also have to wonder, why does the king choose Esther? She's got one chance, one night with the king, and just so happens that he chooses Esther. Then you have her name. Her name is Persian, uh, and it means star. But her given name is a Jewish name, and her Jewish name is Hadassah, but nobody else knows that except for Mordecai. So as you read through the narrative, you see Mordecai, you see Esther, and they're faced with this decision point. They're going to be faced with whether they're going to embrace their identity as God's people, or they're going to go with the flow of Persian culture. And both of them choose to identify as God's person. You've got Mordecai first. Mordecai says, he stands up and says, I'm a Jew, when he's forced to bow down before Haman. Remember, Haman is Xerxes' right-hand man. Haman walks through the city, and Mordecai won't bow down to him. It really ticks Haman off, and he orders that, Haman, that, that Mordecai be executed. And he orders that all the other Jews be executed, too. But Mordecai is willing to do that. And then you've got Esther. Esther finds out about this, this genocide that's going to happen for the Jews from Mordecai. Mordecai says, Esther, I, I want you to leverage your position as queen and go before the king and mediate on behalf of your people. 
Now the queen, if she does this, if Esther does this, that she could lose her life. Because to go before the king, king uninvited is, a, is an offense. It is an offense punishable with death. But she chooses to do so. So you see, these are key moments for Haman, for, for, for Mordecai and for Esther. Some authors even call them that these are their conversions. I, I think it's very possible that this is true. I mean, it's the first time that we read, at least in the narrative, that their faith has become personal, that their faith has become costly. It's the point where they were willing to be counted among the people of God. It's the point where they're willing to be more than just ethnically Jewish, which they don't have a choice in, and they're willing to become spiritually Jewish. Now, maybe this crossroads has come for you. Maybe it's even come for you during these last six weeks that we've been looking at Esther. You've seen that your life is a lot like Esther. It's a lot like Mordecai, where as you look back, things aren't necessarily all that pretty. That you have compromised. But you've realized that there's a better way forward, and you realize that the better way forward is to be with God. But you also know it's going to come at a cost. But you've seen that the cost of not living into your created purpose as being more risky than the cost of being rejected by men. Well, if that's the case, if that's happened for you personally, man, that's wonderful. Because it really is going to cost you. It's true. But there's more to this story. You get to the end of chapter 7, and you see that things have reversed. Haman's no longer on this this ascending trajectory uh, towards more power, more fame, and more money. But that Haman is now being hung on the gallows in place of Mordecai. And Mordecai, instead of being a sackcloth and ashes, has now been given royal robes. And now he has taken the position that Haman used to have as the right-hand man of the king. But things aren't all well yet in the palace. The Jews still have an edict out for their genocide. And so Esther has to go back before Xerxes and plead for the Jews on their behalf. And the king rejects the offer. He says, sure, I'm, I'm going to kill Haman. I'm going to put Mordecai in this position. Your life is safe, but I can't reverse an edict I've already put forth. But what I can do is that I'll let you put forth an edict on your people's behalf. So Mordecai and Esther, they come up with this new thing. They say, all right, the Jews, if you're being attacked in any of the city that you're supposed to be attacked in because of Haman's edict, you can fight back. And the Jews do. And in every city where they've gathered together and where people come against them because they're Jews, the Jews went out. And you get to the end of that scene in 919, Esther 9, verse 19, you would expect that this is where the narrative would end. That the narrative would end with this victory in battle. But that's not the author's intention. The author has a different objective in mind for his narrative, and we'll see it in our text. Uh, so let's read verses 20 to 28. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. 
But when it, had, when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at that time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fail, fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. The word of the Lord. So do you see the purpose of the letter? It wasn't to end in battle. It was to institute and explain this Jewish feast that they call Purim. So the author is looking at his readers in his time, or her readers in her time, we don't know. And they're saying this, the author is saying, see, this is why we celebrate Purim as we do. And the Jews, for the last 2,500 years, have been celebrating Purim for these two days to celebrate that they as a people will never be destroyed. So today, if you went to a synagogue during Purim, I actually did. I had a Jewish philosophy class at UK, and I ended up going to the synagogue that's on Ashland. And I saw them celebrate Purim. And here's what happens. Uh, they read the whole book of Esther in one sitting. And uh, every time that the name Mordecai is uh, used in the story, everyone, everyone in the audience cheers. Every time that the word Haman is used in the story, everybody boos. And they've got these little noisemakers that while they cheer and while they boo, they're using these little clickers. And it's, a no- it's noisy and it's a racket. And what they, uh, other traditions, I wasn't a part of this part of Purim, but um, what I read this week was that uh, there's a, a big feast that's a part of it. There, there's an exchanging of gifts that you give to your loved ones and to your family. And you also have this huge meal. And you're supposed to drink a lot. You're supposed to drink to the point that you can't tell if someone says, Haman be cursed or Mordecai be blessed. It's pretty sloppy drunk. So bottom line, when you celebrate Purim, it really is writ large and great big font. What's happened writ small and much smaller font with Esther and Mordecai. See, if God can change Esther and Mordecai, you're supposed to see that God can change me when you celebrate Purim. If you see that God can save the Jews in the midst of their Persian assimilation, then surely he can save us. Now, you might be sitting there saying, uh, Marsh, I'm going to wave the flag here for you. Uh, we're not in a synagogue. I've never celebrated Purim. I didn't even know what Purim was until seven minutes ago. I'm not a Jew. So why are you going to such great lengths to explain this feast? Well, it's because we're really in the same spot as God's people were in Esther. The odds are stacked against us. Now, you might be healthy or you might be living with a terminal illness. I don't know, but the same thing is on its way for you and for me. And it's death. As surely as it looked that Mordecai was going to hang on the gallows is as surely as you and I are going to have a funeral. 
there seems to be that there's just no way out from death. No matter how good you eat, no matter how faithful you are to working out, death is coming. Except that there is a way out. Because Jesus died and he defeated death on our behalf. Jesus rose from the grave. And here's what he says in Revelation 1. He says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and I, behold, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death. So you see what Purim's doing? Purim is foreshadowing Easter. See, Easter gives us assurance that we will never be defeated by death, but we will triumph over it, even though it, against all human expectation. And we're going to do so because we're united to Christ in his resurrection. See, Christ, not death, is our final destiny. It's a destiny where there's no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more mourning, and yes, no more death. Because death has passed away, and the new days have come. Now, maybe the first time you woke up to the hope of Jesus' resurrection was at your conversion. Maybe you had your such a time as this moment. The time where you stood up and your faith became personal and your faith became costly, just like it did for Esther when she decided she was going to go before the king, just like it did for Mordecai when he refused to bow down to Haman. Maybe you've already had that crossroads moment. And what... Purim, what our text today tells us is that the rest of our life matters too. See, being one of God's people isn't just about a decision point. It's about a way of life. And this annual feast of Purim puts a rhythm into our life. And if you look at the Old Testament, the people of God had lots of rhythms. There was this rhythm called the Sabbath. That one day out of seven, they were to rest from their works as God did from his in creation. There were these annual rhythms, these feasts. You have Purim as one, but there's seven that are instituted in the book of Leviticus. You have the Day of Atonement. You have the Passover. You have the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of First Fruits. So why would God command all these rhythms? Why would he put eight feasts in there? Why would God give us a weekly rhythm? I think here's why he did it. He did it because if these rhythms were to be practiced, that they would produce the kind of people that he had in mind. See, as people, you and I are first and foremost, we're lovers. And our loves are formed by what we do. Our rhythms, our routines, our habits. And if you paid really close attention to your habits, to your routines, to your rhythms, you would begin to discover and unpack what your deepest desire is. See, it's easy to think that our habits are just things that we do. But our habits are doing something to us. Our habits shape what we love. Let me give you a couple examples. One's personal. I go on this thing every fall called CFW. It stands for College Football Weekend. Really uh, uh, 
really original name. CFW is what we call it. It's me and four of my buddies from college. We go to a different football stadium where we do the best we can. Uh, every fall, we've gone 19 years in a row. You can do the math and figure out how old I am there. I'm not 19. I didn't start going when I was a, new, when I was a newborn. That's right. We started doing this in college. We've been doing it every year since. We've been, to, we've been, to, been to a lot of different football stadiums, and we've had a really, really good time. It, it, I, if I were to highlight some of my favorite days on the calendar, it's those four days. We usually leave on a Thursday, get back on a Sunday. We begin to adopt a new approach. We go Friday to Monday. But with all the kids that we've had between the five of us, all the jobs that we've had between the five of us, somehow we've been able to make this work. And as I look back on this liturgy, this routine, this annual habit that I have, and begin to think about it, I can say both these statements with full conviction. I go on this trip because I love these guys. I can also say, I love these guys because I go on this trip. You see? It's formed me. Let's go to shopping. Uh, When you're out shopping, whether it's online or in person, uh, you could say a lot of the same thing for just scrolling your social media feed, by the way. Your imagination is captured, and it's captured through your senses. You begin to see these images of hip and happy people. They're showing you visions of the good life, or at least supposed visions of the good life. And as you shop and as you scroll, they're not lectures that are being given to you to convince your heart of what really matters. What's being given to you are embodiments of the good life in the images themselves. See, when we see these images, when we're at the mall or we're looking at our computer screen, what we're really, what we're really feeling in a, in, a, in a really unconscious way is that we, we, we see these images and we know that's not me. You begin to see that there's a disconnect between the life in that image and your actual life. You begin to see that the insinuation becomes that there's something wrong with you. You begin to ask the question, how do you bridge the chasm between where you are and where these images are? Well, here's the elixir. Here's a solution that's being given to you to bridge that chasm. Shop, spend money, consume So it's kind of like a therapy. It's a way of dealing with your sadness. It's a way of dealing with the frustrations of our broken world. But it wears off fast. And you just travel down farther and farther down the spiral as you become more and more unhealthy and as your routine is further and further reinforced. Okay? Now, I chose shopping. You can use this for any kind of substance abuse too, by the way. So you see, our routines, whether it's a college football weekend with your college buddies, whether it's Purim, whether it's shopping, or dare I say, whether it's weekly corporate worship, they all reflect what's important to us. And they all shape us. They make us into a certain kind of person. So practically, what does this look like? Well, I think it means a lot of things, but let me just list a few in closing. First, I want to mention Christmas and Easter. 
So yes, you're right. I don't even know what the Feast of Trumpets is. But we do have these two holidays. And the problem with these two holidays is that they're celebrated by our entire culture. See, Purim, you've ne- most of you have never even heard of it because you don't have a personal relationship with a Jew. <laughs> you probably didn't grow up one. Chances are, maybe you did. If you did, awesome. But you don't even know what it is. And that's the way Christmas and Easter are in other parts of the world. See, in our culture, these holidays have been co-opted into they're really about consumerism. They're really about chocolate bunnies. They're really about talking Elmos. And they're also about family. And all of a sudden, Christmas and Easter become all about grandma. I hate to say it. But what if our holidays were really centered on Jesus? What if we really did celebrate that we, are, we too will be preserved? We too are going to be safeguarded. That we're not going to be swallowed up by death. What if that's what we actually did in Easter? I think what else this does is it causes us to really question our routines. See, God's the one who instituted routines. He instituted organic ones, like in Deuteronomy 6, when he says, hey, when you're walking along the road, talk about my commandments. Post them on the doorposts of your house. They're organic routines. But then he's got these institutional routines about the feast and the Sabbath. And God gave us these because he made us, as one author says, liturgical animals. He made us routine-driven humans. And we can't help but have routines, even if you're unconscious of your routines. It could be that you just look at your phone before you go to sleep every night. That's a routine. So it's worth questioning what kind of human beings are our routines making us into. I think the last practical thing uh, is that what Purim does, what this passage does, is it should make us less cynical. See, things couldn't have looked any more hopeless for the Jews than they did in Esther. Things didn't look any worse for the people of God at any point in all of salvation history except one. And it's the three days that Jesus was dead. But somehow, God was able to turn, turn around the grave, and God was able to turn around what was going on with the execution of all the Jews in Esther. And it should cause us to think that things aren't as glib as they seem. Yeah, I mean, you're right. On this side of Jesus' return, things might not change, but someday all sad things will become untrue. But some things actually will change. And that's why we pray. And that's why we celebrate. See, really what feasting becomes is feasting becomes like a battle. Feasting is when we put a stake in the ground and we declare the Lord of the resurrection is the Lord of the feast. Because it's in feasting we demonstrate our faith that resurrection life is going to triumph over death. It's in feasting that we say, I'm going to gather around this table. I'm going to raise a toast to the king. The coming kingdom is on its way and I'm going to fight back in this feast. I know, if you're like me, you're tempted to think that Persia is going to win out. You're tempted to think that death is going to win. 
but it's in feasting that we celebrate that there is a God who's happier than we think. It's in feasting that we live into the promised future where one day in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to sit and feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So don't you wish we still did Purim? Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you make us a feasting people? And may our feasting be uh, countercultural, and may it draw others unto you. In Christ's name, amen.